Hello and welcome. I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this is another episode of Been There, Seen That. Welcome back to our 31st episode. Today we are covering Spider-Man. The 2002 Spider-Man where it all began. If you don't yeah. include the live action TV series from the 70s, which no one does. If you aren't living under a rock, you probably have seen it. Um, hopefully, hopefully by this point. I mean, I think this is a big movie. I know for you, this movie was randomly big for you like growing I up. <laughs> I was like obsessed with it. And I thought it was so cool because I really like the superhero movies. <laughs> And like growing up, this movie came out before the Marvel Cinematic Universe even started. So it kind of I mean, we'll we'll get talking into it a little later because I have another article for you guys that's really interesting about how this movie really changed superhero movies. But uh, yeah, looking at this as something that was before the Marvel Cinematic Universe in its conception, really, it's it's really interesting. And it was like my favorite movie growing up like me and my brother loved this movie i think everyone loved this movie i remember actively renting this movie repeatedly from the video mm-hmm. store by the house where Ugh, i grew up the and video store <laughs> i know throwback for my rewatch of this i actually pulled out my vhs uh if love you guys that. follow us on instagram you might have seen the story i definitely have this on dvd like in three copies of it or something I actually bought the VHS from like a going away sale at the video store. And then years later, I ended up buying the DVD at Blockbuster's going out of business sale. So sad, sad. Yeah, this movie was like really big at the time. I mean, it broke records. This is the first movie that ever passed the $100 million mark at the box office, which is huge. Well, for an opening weekend. Yeah, this is the first movie that had $100 million in an opening weekend. And I think it's more common nowadays i mean we just had thor love and thunder take the 140 something and you basically get a new blockbuster every couple of months nowadays yeah and it's kind of an expectation now for any kind of superhero movie that comes out to pass that 100 million dollar mark like it's it's not considered a good opening unless you really have that 100 million dollars but i think spider-man in a lot of ways kind of created this first super mega successful superhero movie because It came out in a time where all we really had was like these, the Fox X-Men movies started coming out around the same time and Mm -hmm. there just wasn't as big of a market for it. And I feel like the market nowadays is very oversaturated with superhero content. Yeah, this really kickstarted. I mean, the article that I was referencing before was from Screen Rant and it's how Spider-Man, this version changed the superhero movies and how it influenced all of the movies to come after that. I mean, the first thing that they reference on here is that the opening Marvel sequence, that like famous flipbook logo that they have, this is the first time that ever shows up. Like, that's a big deal. That became so iconic. And, you know, we've gotten it changed now that we've kind of cycled through, what is it, like the three phases of Marvel? We're on phase four right now. Phase four, yeah. So like after, I think I think it was after the second or third phase, they kind of pushed that one out a little bit and had them more animated and more animated in in terms of modern animation and not just that 2d they became what they are nowadays yeah it's it's really interesting going back and watching this movie because i think when you're 
watching the newer Marvel movies, and I know we've talked about this before, some of them just look so overproduced to the point where it's like, ah, man, I don't... And I, you know what? I'm kind of kind of blaming on Disney a little bit because I feel like Disney movies are also overproduced to where it's, it almost looks like fantasy. And I know, you know, we're talking about superheroes here. It's supposed to be fantastical in some sort of it. But when you're looking at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, it's... <laughs> they, I've seen a few articles describe it as campy because it's so set in like realism that it, it's almost kind of ridiculous, but it, it works. Like they play it off really well. And I love that this is really kind of grounded in that reality as opposed to that overproduced fantastical version that we get now where it's like, I almost feel like I'm watching animated characters fly through the sky. And I think an important thing to look at, especially in this one, because when you look at Spider-Man 3, which we can kind of talk about, having more than one villain overclogs the plot a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's not the case in this film because there's only Green Goblin really. And it gives you more time to focus on Peter Parker and gives him more of a character. So you kind of see a little bit of yourself in him. You see his humanity side. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the pull of Spider-Man and why Spider-Man is so many people's like most beloved character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in Marvel in general, just because he feels like he is a relatable character. But before we give anything else away, I'm going to give you your spoiler warning right here. We are going to be talking about the 2002 Spider-Man in its entirety. So if you have not seen that yet, number one, we highly recommend that you see that now. And number two, we recommend you stop here, give us a pause, and then revisit us at a later date. So let's talk about the plot a little bit. And I mean, we talked about you had the opening Marvel title crawl, but a signature thing from the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans is the title crawl and the iconic and cinematic score for the Spider-Man films. And everyone recognizes it as soon as it starts playing. And it's the opening titles with the webs all around and they're pulling the names of the producers, so the actors, cool. the directors, the sound. Like, ah, everyone recognizes it. And shout out to Danny Elfman here because he is one of those composers, I think. Like, everybody kind of knows Danny Elfman, but I feel like he flies a little bit more under the radar when it comes to looking at someone like Hans Zimmer that everybody knows, like, Hans Zimmer has done everything. But Danny Elfman, he's so funny because you get him doing, like, Tim Burton, and then you get him doing Spider-Man, and then he also did Fifty Shades of Grey. So, like, <laughs> he's got quite the range there. I think it's a very haunting sound almost. It is a haunting sound. And I think that fits this this Spider-Man. I'd argue that this is the darkest Spider-Man. Would you? I think that the villain is the darkest. I don't know if this is the darkest in terms of Spider-Man as a character. Because looking at Spider-Man 3 where they were, quote, in the tagline, exploring like his dark side. Yeah. I think that if you're just looking in terms of which Spider-Man movie would I say is the scariest, this one. Okay, well, what about in terms of each Spider-Man? So, like, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, and Tom Holland. I think that looking at the Andrew Garfield movies, you get more of an edgy vibe in the aesthetic, and it's mm -hmm. a little bit more mature. I didn't feel like I was watching a high school Peter Parker. It was more of, like, a young adult Peter Parker, which, especially in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, it kicks off with them graduating from high school. So that makes more sense in that aspect. But even when they were in high school, the school part of those Spider-Man movies was more incorporated than in the Sam Raimi ones, where you kind of get the opening scenes at school. But other than that, they're grown-ups through the rest of the trilogy. And I feel like the Andrew Garfield ones didn't really have time to explore the more mature side, but they felt darker for some reason. 
Okay, I actually haven't seen all of those, and I only saw, I think, the second one, like, one time. So they're not very fresh in my brain. But you brought up an interesting point there, which is one of the things that when people are talking about the 2002 version of Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire is always brought up, and it always really, really bugs me. And that's that Tobey Maguire was, like, way too old to play Spider-Man. But re-watching it, I don't think he looks too old to be playing a senior. I believe he was the oldest of the trio of like Mary Jane, Harry and Peter. Yeah. But like when you're looking at it in terms of how they look like their visual and what they play, I feel like he fit in very well. And I was reading one article talking about this specifically. So I'm going to quote it here and give you this. Although Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst don't seem like they're playing high school kids now, at the time, seeing actors that look like those two in a mainstream superhero movie was a revelation. And they reference people like Christopher Reeve, Michael Keaton, Kim Basinger. Like, I think looking at it now, we're we're seeing Tom Holland, who is also older. Like, he's in his 20s. He's not a high schooler, but he has such a baby face. <laughs> and he plays a lot younger. But at the time... The people you are seeing on screen that were supposed to be playing high schoolers in 2002 looked very similar to Tobey Maguire and even older. And I mean, you even look at shows on like Disney Channel or Nickelodeon and yeah, at the beginning of the shows, those kids look like they should be in those like schools and they look like they're our age. But as they grow up and the characters don't age out, it does kind of give the public opinion that people look older than they actually are. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of that has to go into paperwork and how easy it is to hire legal adults as opposed to those under 18 when you have to then provide school and then provide, you know, parents have to be set on set and everything. It's it's like a whole process. One of the problems I kept seeing in a lot of the research that I did for this movie was specifically for the role of Mary Jane Watson, Elizabeth Banks auditioned and they told her that she looked too old for the role. And she went on to be cast as Betty at the Daily Bugle, but she's only like two or three years older than Kirsten Dunst. And then I can't remember what else I was reading something else, but down the line, they were casting all these women and saying that they were too old to be playing this. But then the men are like 10 or 12 years older than they're playing and no one's batting an eye. They're saying, oh, they look too young. And I think that might be a lot of the controversy in this movie as well. I think it's really interesting when you get into that topic. And honestly, we could do an entire episode on talking about like, I'm just going to call it ageism in film because people play a different age than they are which is confusing and a little complicated but i don't know if you're if you're looking at casting an actor oh this person can play 16 to 28 like it's not your face can work for different ages and just your brain will accept it i don't know how that you know what i mean (laughs) suspended disbelief yeah 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 you kind of just go along with it at the time and i i just really don't think it's not a glaring issue to me that toby mcguire is playing a high schooler I don't think it was a problem for me for any of them. I just, I feel like a lot of people argue which Spider-Man is better. And it's not Mm -hmm. really fair to compare them because not only is the character of Spider-Man different for each of them and it's written differently, the Peter Parker is different. And there could be this whole discussion on how the Marvel Universe kind of took the individuality that each of these Spider-Man franchises had and kind of squashed it with no way home and in a way everyone loved it and it was great fan service but at the same time do you kind of wish that they left those franchises untouched because i just heard that andrew garfield signed to be in like three more marvel cinematic universe movies and 
Oh. I kind of feel like they're not going to be giving us the same Amazing Spider-Man that we would have gotten had the Amazing Spider-Man movies just continued on their own. You know what I mean? Because those were Sony, correct? Yeah, all of or them are Sony. Sony. That's the, the problem. Oh, okay. So Sony owns Spider-Man and they refuse to sign it over to Marvel or Disney. And because of that, they hold on to it. And it's almost like a joint cooperation thing. Because if you remember, they didn't renew Spider-Man and Sony said that they couldn't make Spider-Man right. 3 and it became this whole fan movement and I think that's where they kind of were like well let's do this as a fan service movie yeah I it's so complicated because I think when you're getting I don't I don't know which studio produced the amazing Spider-Man but I know Columbia Pictures did this one and then Marvel and Disney did the new Spider-Man movies so I think you're you're really getting that studio influence as well. And a big thing that almost every single article that I read referenced when it came to this movie was that Sam Raimi had such a hand in the way that this film looked as opposed to now. You're lucky if you get a glimpse of the director's personality in the film. I think Sam Raimi is just such a unique director and Marvel Studios actually just hired him on and he just did Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which you can definitely tell is a Sam Raimi directed movie. It mm -hmm. isn't necessarily what you would consider your typical Marvel movie in terms of aesthetic. In terms of plot, it is just your run-of-the-mill superhero movie in my opinion and i think that maybe i'm unpopular maybe not but i think it was a letdown it kind of just didn't really deliver but this isn't a doctor strange episode so i won't really go off about that <laughs> everyone if you want to have that conversation let you know us where know. to get us at the end of this episode <laughs> all right so let's move on a little bit because we haven't gotten past the opening sequence yet but we open on in the darkness we have this voiceover who am i are you sure you want to know? Which is so, I love that opening. It's so cheesy. <laughs> There's like such a charm to how cheesy this movie is. And I think the opening really, really hits you with it. It's the introduction to nerdy Peter Parker, at least nerdy the Peter. one that we're about to get to know for like, you know, the first 10 minutes of this franchise. And love nerdy Peter. He is talking about who he is and it just pans down as he's chasing the bus because, you know, he's that nerd that nothing goes right for. And he's screaming, stop the bus, and no one's stopping, but everyone on the bus is laughing at him. And then we're introduced to the love interest, Mary Jane Watson, who is actually his savior in the beginning. She goes up and tells the bus driver to stop, and Peter gets on the bus, and you kind of get this vibe that no one likes Peter. Everyone's staring at him and not yeah. letting him sit with them, and then someone trips him. But again, you're kind of just getting this full outcast vibe. They're trying to tell us, oh, he doesn't fit in. And I think it's a really quick and easy way to establish that where it's like, oh, that's so embarrassing. He's running after the bus and like not he's not going to make it, blah, blah, blah. And then the pretty girl next door, which MJ is kind of the epitome of girl next door. She's slightly popular. Everybody kind of knows who she is because of who she's dating. But she's very down to earth and sweet. I think you, you get a really quick and easy introduction to these characters, which helps throw us into the story faster. I agree. And it kind of just picks up because right away they're on this field trip to Columbia University in the genetics right. laboratory. And outside we have a few moments where you learn that Peter's best friend is Harry Osborne. And Harry has this moment with Norman Osborne, his father outside, where you can well, see that they have almost like a strained relationship. But what an iconic performance from Willem Dafoe. Gotta love him. And honestly, bringing it back to what we were talking about earlier, I think he had the most consistent performance from this to No Way Home. I mean, Willem Dafoe just grabs a character and takes hold of it like, like no other actor does. I think he does such a phenomenal job with 
the goblin and with Osborne. I, nobody could even compare, you know? And he did like all of his stunts for this one and the new one. His condition for and coming back too? to the new one wasn't even like a payment dispute. It was like, I will come back only if you let me do as many stunts as possible. And they were like, okay. And it also <laughs> was so for this wacky. one as well. He is, <laughs> he's off the chain. I love him though. And that's what makes him such a good actor is that he fully commits, even if it's maybe not the safest option. And that is why we have stunt doubles to do these things. But you know, you got to give him what he wants to have. He's willing to foe. So inside the genetics lab, we're looking around and they're talking about all these different spiders that they're doing experiments with. And you get a really cool few shots where you're looking at all these very exotic spiders. And one of them's like a jumping spider. And mm -hmm. again, this is where you get a Sam Raimi type of vibe because it's almost like a horror movie creature feature type. Have you ever seen arachnophobia? No. <laughs> that's the kind of vibe that I get. It's very eerie just because you're watching spiders do stuff that Ooh. if they were to do it in your presence, you would probably go running screaming. Yikes. So then through the tour, we see these 15 genetic super spiders, which are like DNA altered spiders to make them super, essentially, um, which is different from the comic books, correct? Uh, I think they're radioactive spiders or something. Yeah, so the comic books actually have a couple different origins. I mean, you talk about a character where there's so many different versions of it, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, Into yeah. the Spider-Verse, we see that. We do, yeah. We see a lot of different iterations from Into the Spider-Verse, but yeah, just... It is one of the iterations where it's radioactive. Um, this is more just the Columbia University lab. So they're there on a field trip. And you also see a little bit of tension because Peter confides in Harry about having a crush on Mary Jane, but feeling like an outcast. And Harry's a little bit more of a confident type of person. He tells Peter, oh, you know, look at her. She's so great. And Peter's like, yeah, she is great. And then Harry uses a fact that Peter like just spits to the side when he's standing next to Harry and he goes up and uses it as a pickup line for Mary Jane. And it's setting yeah. up this love triangle that's going to unfold over the trilogy. <sighs> it's just, Harry's not my favorite character. Like Harry's so interesting because you kind of want to love him, but he's super toxic. He's so toxic. It's James Franco. I know. I love him though. He's so hot. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so then we see this this really cool shot when MJ notices one of the spiders is missing that you you get an, a shot. It's not like it's not really an overhead, but it's above them. And it pulls focus when she says, oh, one's missing and pulls focus from the students below to the spider web that's been created in the corner of the ceiling. So we're, we know where the spider is. We have that like om omnipresent knowledge now. So then the scene unfolds where Peter and MJ are kind of left behind as the class moves on. And funny enough, when Harry was trying to pick up Mary Jane, the teacher noticed and pulls him to the side <laughs> because now he's like going to flunk him or something like that. But yeah, they have this really cute moment where we're introduced to the love between Peter and Mary Jane. And he takes her picture and he says it's for the yearbook and she's doing like all these goofy poses for him. But as this happens, we see the camera look at Peter's hand on the camera and a spider lands on it and it's crawling up him and you're kind of like, I wonder what's going on. And then you mix in some of the VFX of the spider down on his hand and you see the mm -hmm. eyes of the spider and you see it sink its fangs into Peter's hand and Peter jumps and MJ gets pulled away her attention. I think her friends call her and it kind of just moves on from there. They then just leave and it cuts to Peter going home not feeling well. Yeah. And we're also introduced to Aunt May and Uncle Ben in that scene. And I don't know about you, but I really love Aunt May and Uncle Ben being like older and kind of, I think they're unnecessarily old in this, 
in this version of it, but I feel like, okay, don't hate me for saying this, but I feel like the yesification of Aunt May in the new Spider-Man movies and making her like young and hip is just, I don't know. It doesn't feel the same. They're, I think like, more they like threw besties. that in to like appeal to what they already had established and connect it. I mean, your first introduction to Aunt May in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is when she's flirting with Tony Stark. So I think they were trying to go for that angle of it. And it wasn't yeah. as much of a character. Until No Way Home, she became a character. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just not my not my cup of tea. I really like them as like an older couple. And they're, it, it gives you more sympathy towards them. I don't know. I'm not going to spoil No Way Home or anything or any of the new movies because it's not that episode. But <laughs> I feel like the things that happen in this movie, you're like, oh, they're just they're just old people. They they don't have anything wrong. They haven't done anything wrong. And then I think you have a little bit more sympathy, too, because it shows that they've raised Peter. And I don't really think that you get the vibe that Peter was theirs to raise. So you feel yeah. a little bit more sympathetic and heartfelt towards them as his parental figures. Right. But yeah, like you said, he's not feeling well. And you get this this sequence of him looking in the mirror and it's really disorienting. And he kind of like breaks into cold sweats and falls to the floor. And the spider bite here is like really nasty. Um, but the the way that they kind of do those like overlay shots is so cool here. And you feel disoriented with him. So I feel like it works really well. And you're having like a lot of like subliminal imagery too, where they're just like flashing quick glimpses of spiders, but oh, and you it's not the really DNA. subliminal. Yeah, I think it's like just slowed down. It's not subliminal, but it like <laughs> is like these creepy images of spiders, and then you see his DNA turning. But it's almost like a yeah. nightmarish sequence. Yeah, and that's what I like about it. Like again, here we see Sam Raimi kind of doing his little his little horror hand in into the film, which I don't think we see a lot nowadays. It's like you you go to see these Marvel films and if you had shown me any of these, I would not be able to guess what director they came from. But if you show me this and be like, Oh, it's Sam Raimi. I'd be like, of course that's Sam Raimi. Like that would make sense. All these weird sequences. There's like little campy moments. Like it makes sense. And they use it as a transition here because then we cut to Oscorp and you get to know Norman Osborn as a character a little bit more. We learned that he's like a scientist. I he's guess. a nanotechnician. A nanotechnician. So yeah. he's the founder and owner of Oscorp, which is this giant, I want to say it's a weapons company, but they work in a, a bunch of different sciences that they're essentially working to sell to the military. Yeah, they're working in like genetically altering soldiers, I think, because what they're trying to do, the, the big thing that they're complaining about is, oh, you haven't done a human trial yet. And in this part, you know, we see... Norman essentially trying it on himself and saying that science is risk. And he, the, the direct quote is risks are part of laboratory science. And that push comes from the military. I think that's where we kind of see like what they're trying to get out of him is like <laughs> making this kind of monster. <laughs> that's essentially what happens because they threaten to pull out and go to a different weapon specialist and yeah that pushes norman to be like no let me test this on myself even though it's not safe and his assistant says that they shouldn't be doing it and he's pleading him but norman's like i have to do this and you get this again very nightmarish but also kind of campy villain transformation where he's in this gas chamber and he's inhaling this green gas and it looks like he's having like a seizure as he's strapped mm -hmm. down and you just hear the heart rate flatline and all of a sudden the assistant's doing cpr and Norman's eyes just shoot open and he has super strength and throws the lab assistant across the room. And, and then it just cuts. formula. 
yeah, back to formula. And he does this like eerie screech and it just cuts to the next scene. Yeah, when Peter's waking up and then you get that really, like, again, like you said, iconic shot of him blurry vision through the glasses. Claire's he puts them down and he's just like weird. And suddenly Peter Parker can see. That's one of the things I like, too, is that he's like looking at this physique. His entire physique has changed Mm -hmm. overnight. And I read the behind the scenes for he had a shirtless moment right before he went to bed. Mm -hmm. And it's very just flat chested. He's not bulked up. It's very just slim. But all of a sudden he wakes up and he's transformed. And what happened was they had to use a body double, but CGI his face on. (laughs) That's really funny. Because he was too bulked up. Yeah. Oh, for the first scene? Not for the first scene, but for the mirror scene, just for the shirtless moment. Oh my God, that's funny. Yeah, I, I even put here, is he tan too? Because it's almost like, he. I think he's tanner. But I mean, him being paler in the first the first shirtless scene would make sense because he's literally like in cold sweats and dying. So we're kind of seeing that he's all of a sudden had these powers, but he doesn't really know what's going on. You just hear him go like, I think it's a moment with Uncle Ben where he's just like, are you going to get changed? I think it's Aunt May, actually. But she's like, are you going to get changed? And he's like, yeah, there's big change. Yeah. And I think so going back to that Screen Rant article that I referenced earlier, one of the precedents that they set for the other superhero movies that kind of came after this one is that you see the actual origin and you're you're seeing Peter Parker find out his powers as Spider-Man alongside him. And it's 45 minutes before we even see him put on the Spider-Man suit for the first time. And so seeing that kind of translate into Captain America and Iron Man and every single superhero origin that we get, it comes from this. And it's so important to see that because we see them as real people transforming into these kind of superhumans. One of the things that I hear a lot of criticism for, or not criticism, I guess, but more so praise in the Marvel Universe Spider-Man is that they didn't really give us the origin story. They didn't give us the Uncle Ben plot that we're about to get into and unfolding Mm -hmm. of the powers with being bitten by a spider. And everyone was saying, oh, well, it's been done so many times we don't need to see it again. I think with this one, though, giving us all of this as character development is necessary because we Mm -hmm. don't really have as much background knowledge as a movie audience if you weren't into the comics. You kind of just know of the character of Spider-Man. And it also is giving us more of a character for Peter Parker. It's giving us the opportunity to give him characterization and humanity and giving him something more than just these witty one-liners as he's catching robbers. I completely agree with you. I love this movie for the fact that he's not Spider-Man off the bat. So we find out a little bit after that that MJ's window looks into his and they've kind of grown up as neighbors, but she has maybe like not noticed him so much. And we see her dad chase her out by yelling at her and Peter sees her and follows her to the bus and then again gets stuck running after the bus. And then this is the first time that you see some of his powers slightly manifesting because he sticks his hand to the side of the bus to tap it and say, hey, stop, stop, wait for me. And the paper banner that's kind of taped onto the side gets stuck to his hand and he rips it off and stops and just kind of like looks at his hand and has to rip it free. So we're seeing like sticky spider senses in his hand. <laughs> and then we cut to the cafeteria later in the day and mm-hmm. MJ ends up walking past his table but slips on a carton of spilled milk. And they have this really cool shot where she falls into Peter's arm and he catches all of her food on her lunch tray. Can he do that? Yeah. One of the things I read was that he actually filmed that. That's not VFX. That's not anything edited he had to catch all of that and it took like 156 takes <gasps> oh my god i would have been pissed that's Honestly, crazy that they got it though 
No, I think that's insane. And I think it really has a good payoff because, again, going back to that article, something that really worked in this film, and I think we've kind of lost sight of in like the newer superhero films, is that Sam Raimi was really insistent on making things that didn't have to be CGI practical. So I feel like that's part of the reason that this looks so real and it's almost set more in realism than fantasy because there's so much less CGI and no scene, and this is a quote from Screen Rant, no scene is 100% computer generated, a deliberate choice from Raimi to keep everything as believable as possible. And I feel like losing sight of that, that's why some of these movies, I mean, I just, I hate to say it, but Black Panther is just so CGI that it, my brother and I were like, it looks like if you were standing in front of one of those light up like billboards at the airport, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I feel like having him do that take, do that shot in what 150 something takes really is a testament to how important it was to keep this looking realistic. Well, it was also just a different time. I don't think that the technology we have today was accessible to them back then. And I mean, you look at it as this movie really paved the way for a lot of VFX. And mm -hmm. one of the things I even read is for the ending shot where you're getting Spider-Man just swinging through the city and landing on the American flag. That final moment, they began working on the first day of production and it was the last thing that was done. Like it was the last thing wow. they had to add to the movie. That's how long it took just from all the VFX that went into that. That's dedication, man. That's crazy. So I think that to what you're saying, there is an art form to using real people and real stunts as opposed to just making it computer animated mm -hmm. but at the same time it's still an art form and sometimes it's necessary and you look at the scale of blockbusters and summer blockbusters that we're seeing nowadays and marvel movies i think are just a bigger scale than what spider-man was spider-man had these almost intimate action sequences yeah i saw that sam raimi was mentioning all of the swinging and flying around in fights in the city it's very much like a ballet yeah, I mean, like having to choreograph that all, it has to be precise in the way that dance is precise. Exactly. And I think that you look at Marvel movies that we're seeing nowadays and you don't get that. You don't get an intimate feeling in these battles. It's just so massive that you're kind of bored. Yeah. So moving on a little bit, we then get that huge fight between, what's his name, like Flash or something? Flash MJ's, Thompson, yeah, Flash. Yeah. <laughs> MJ's boyfriend, Flash, who's like basically just a goon. So... Flash storms after him and he gets into this huge fight with Peter, but everything we're seeing kind of how Spidey Sense works here because everything's moving in slow motion for Peter. And he's like, wow, like I can see things before, or like I can sense things when they're happening. It's, it's kind of a cool way to show it, like showing us how he's seeing things. And then he's kind of avoiding everything and then hits one wicked punch and Flash goes kind of scooting through the school. And MJ like starts off kind of like pissed or scared and then she becomes very impressed and she's i don't know i think it scares her a little bit that peter parker was able to just absolutely deck flash well we're also introduced to the iconic spider sense scenes where you hear that like tingling noise mm -hmm. where he senses danger and it turns into those stylized fights but it's so iconic because it happens right before all these big fights throughout the trilogy right which brings us into an iconic scene here where 
as again, Peter's discovering his powers, we're discovering them with them. And he runs out of the school. You get that extreme close up shot on his thumb as like these, I want to call them like spores grow out of his thumb. And they're like these, these prickly little things. And that wall climbing sequence that we all know and we all love. Oh, it's so good. I completely agree. This is a scene. I remember I got a toy from Target when the Spider-Man movies came out that attached like silly string to a Spider-Man glove and you could shoot your webs. And I would pretend that I was about to do the scene where he like swings from the building. Yeah. And I love that whole sequence where he's trying to figure out how to shoot webs and he's like, go web, go fly. (laughs) Like that's, I used to quote that all the time when I was a kid because it was just so funny. And it was ad-libbed by Tobey Maguire and he threw (laughs) in a few DC ones there because when he said up, up and away web, that's for Superman. And then he just straight up goes Shazam, which hello. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. And I was reading earlier that um, Tobey Maguire hadn't read the comics. He just liked the script and that's why he took the role. Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's a well-written role, and it sounds fun, at least for me. Yeah, and we get that first swing on the web, and again, we're seeing him transform into Spider-Man and kind of figure it out. We're on this journey with him, and it's not graceful. He face plants right into a wall. But then it just kind of cuts. That's the end of his training (laughs) montage, if you will. And it can't be cut, if you will. It's this sad moment, because when he woke up this morning feeling great, he had a moment with Uncle Ben where... Uncle Ben was like, are we still going to be painting the house after school? And he's like, don't start without me. And Uncle Ben's like, and you don't start without me. But you realize Mm -hmm. that Peter, because he got caught up in all of this, has forgotten about it. So he's come home a little bit too late to paint because everyone's gone to sleep, but they left him dinner. And he's taking out the garbage, but overhears Mary Jane's parents screaming at each other. And while he's out back taking out the garbage, Mary Jane kind of storms out of the house and they share this moment where they're getting to know each other and they're like, oh, what are your plans? And Mary Jane reveals that she wants to go and be an actress. And Peter shares that he thinks that she would be great because he's seen all of her shows and she he thinks she's, she's such a good actress. And it's a very cute character moment. Again, you're getting a very sweet romance budding between the two of them. But then it's interrupted by Flash pulling up in his brand new car. And he's like, look at my new birthday present. And she kind of just goes with him. So all of a sudden, Peter's like, oh, she's into guys that have cars. And we have this montage where he's looking at <laughs> newspaper ads, looking for jobs and cars. And Well, he's looking you- for the car. And then right underneath it, it says like the wrestling ad where it says like win $3,000 and the car he was looking at was two ninety nine or something. And it's also showing him like sketching up this costume for whatever his secret it's identity is going montage. to be for wrestling. And it's facing away from the audience. So it's going to be this very big reveal later on. And then it immediately cuts to the goblin laughing in Norman's house in the Osborne's house. And you you get this creepy like laugh coming from down the hallway and it almost like resonates around him and i put here it possesses him because like tell me if you have a different kind of interpretation of this but the goblin feels like a jekyll and hyde sort of situation where norman is norman but sometimes he gets possessed by this like goblin creature that is almost its own separate entity that lives kind of within the mask I think that's a good comparison for it. Yeah, it's 
it's like such a weird relationship and we'll see that a little later on but i think again going back to that screen rant article one of the things that makes this movie so good and and that is also used by christopher nolan in the dark knight which we'll talk about later on in so excited to talk about that is that he only uses like defoe only has about 20 minutes of screen time in the entire movie which is wild when you think about it because he's such an impactful character but giving him those short little interactions and moments as the goblin makes him so much more difficult to pin down as a character and it makes him spookier and funny enough with that amount of screen time he still is the most deadly villain i think in all the spider-man movies if i'm not mistaken because Mm -hmm. from what i counted i believe the body count was like 12 people in this movie and none of the other spider-man villains had anything like that at all and they didn't really injure any like bystanders or civilians whereas norman especially at the fair like wreaks havoc yeah oh my god he's such a good villain but then we move on a little later a little later where uncle ben offers to drive peter to the quote-unquote library where he's actually going to the wrestling match and they kind of get into this little spat about oh you're you're changing and it's okay and peter's like i'm fine and he tells him you get that iconic line with great power comes great responsibility and That has gone on to just live the legacy of Spider-Man, I think. And then he gets out of the car. So they kind of end on this very heated between the two of them. And Peter goes into this wrestling rink where, hello cameos, because we have (sighs) Oscar-winning Octavia Spencer here. I love that for her. I Going back and watching this... to be honest with you, I haven't seen this movie in years. Like, like maybe 10. Like, it's been a really long time. Totally had no idea she was in this movie. And I was like, oh my god! This cast is loaded if you actually sit down and look about. Huge, huge names. And I said that like in my notes for the opening sequence, like all the names were rolling out. And I was like, holy crap, all these people were in this movie? And we also have our Bruce Campbell cameo where he is announcing the wrestling rink. And all of a sudden, it's Peter's turn. And you see him him walking in and there's all these people just like throwing stuff at him, like popcorn and programs and harassing him as he's walking to the stage saying he's not going to survive and essentially what he has to do is survive in the rink for three minutes but as he's entering the ring a cage starts to close in and he realizes that this is a cage fight and wait you missed the most important part though and he says who are you kid and he goes the human spider (laughs) but then he gets uh, introduced as spider-man well he calls him the amazing spider-man which is that's where he gets the name Love that. And so from then on, he is Spider-Man. But I just think it's so funny. Like, they they do, not to bring it back to Marvel all the time, but I think this is really relevant. So, you know, it's important. But I think Marvel has become so focused on this, like, weird, witty humor that's really sarcastic and whatnot. And it's, it's almost the entire movie is based on these jokes that really don't land half the time. But in this, I that was such a humorous moment. And it was... It's sweet because you know he thinks he's super cool he's like i'm the human spider <laughs> and he introduces him as the amazing spider-man which clearly sounds better and it's also giving you the explanation of well how did he come up with spider-man exactly well and it's not even him it's like everyone just call- starts calling him spider-man this is such a good fight here because it starts off with peter winning and then the guy he's up against his name is bonesaw and Bonesaw gets a hold of him and starts knocking him around for a little bit. And then eventually Peter takes the lead and knocks the crap out of him and, and wins. 
But this is also where things take a turn for the worse, because afterwards, when he goes to collect his winnings, the keeper is kind of just like, you knocked him out in two minutes. The fight said you had to survive three. You're only getting paid a hundred bucks. And he turns the cold shoulders like I missed the part where that's my problem. But right as Peter's getting ready to leave, there's a robber who comes running at him and the keeper's like, hey, he got my money. And Peter just steps to the side and lets the robber go. And you get another clap back from Peter where Peter looks at the teller and goes, I missed the part where that's my problem. Such an important setup. And I think in a lot of movies now, we don't get, you know, such an emotional setup because he's just filled with like rage and anger. And I I think a lot of times superheroes don't have that like really grounded rage. It's just kind of unsolicited. Exactly. And when you go further into the Sam Raimi trilogies, I think you'll notice that there is a lot more of a revenge theme with the Spider-Man. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the third one, we were talking about how dark it was earlier. Yeah, that's kind of where they were really pushing to take on his darker side, which I don't really think transitioned well. I think that the way it was written was different, but we're back at the roots right now. We're still in our origin story. So back to the story a little bit. We kind of follow the burglar out of the building and on, on Peter's way out, he sees Uncle Ben laying in the street. Well, he sees Sorry, we all know it's Uncle Ben, but there's a there's a swarm of cops around a person who then turns out to be Uncle Ben and he's shot, he's bleeding. And oh, my God, that's such a good shot where Peter's holding his hand and then his hand just like goes limp and he just dies. And Toby Maguire gives it his all. Gives it his all. <laughs> what an iconic moment. <laughs> And you also have that moment where he like walks back into the house and you see Aunt May stand up and just collapse into his arms crying. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like those are really like deep moments there. I think they do a really good job balancing that because, I mean, we see like not giving anything away here, but there's an emotional moment in No Way Home. And that really got everybody. And I feel like at the time, like this was kind of similar. Would you agree? I mean, I think every Spider-Man movie has that moment where it's supposed to be a little bit emotional because you see it in The Amazing Spider-Man as well. Mm -hmm. And they even reference in the uh, No Way Home, you know, this line was the night Uncle Ben died and they're all on sync on that. And for Tom Holland, it's Aunt May. And yeah, it's just like the genuine moment. So I feel like they try to always have that. And if you think about it, that's kind of where... Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man because it sends him Mm -hmm. on this rampage where he's trying to hunt down this man. And we get these montages of him chasing down all these criminals, trying to find the guy and he gets the guy. And yeah, it's, I think rooted in such reality again. And that's why I love this movie because he has a genuine motive and it doesn't feel like it's, Oh, we're giving our character a motive because at this point, like I, I mentioned prior to this, we're already 45 minutes into the movie. Like, it's been a while. He's not even really Spider-Man yet. He had that one moment of being like a wrestler, but it's, I think really, it's a really good payoff that you get from the way that this plot unfolds because it, it feels natural. As any good origin story should. Absolutely. I feel like we kind of have lost that a bit in superhero movies. I don't know. Sometimes it feels a little forced as this is my motive. This is why I'm going to be the good guy. I mean, there's just formulaic plots at this point. There's not really motives anymore because they realize that Mm -hmm. anything they put out, people will show up for. Right. So going back to when he finds this burglar, the burglar is hiding out in like this abandoned building and Peter like fucks him up a little bit. (laughs) 
you have Sam Raimi at his like finest work here. He's just using all of his horror aspects, I think, mm-hmm. when you're getting all these different shots because you don't actually see Spider-Man. He's just in the shadows and he hears the burglar hears all of these like noises and sees these reflections and shadows and it's just like watching a horror movie. Yeah, it's so good, but Ah, man, again, this really dark moment. Peter finds him and literally throws him through a window, which kills him. Yeah, I think that's kind of where he realizes that that's not the type of hero he wants to be, though, because yeah. he thinks back and he realizes, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and all that hoo-ha. But once he realizes that revenge can get the better side of him, and that's what they explore in the third one is revenge, but... He's mm-hmm. seeing this and we're seeing that he does have a dark side to him. It's just not going to be as fleshed out. But I think it's also just to show that he has a little bit of humanity to him. You know, he is real and he feels pain. And at the end of the day, his emotions can get the better hold of him. Yeah, exactly. And this next this next scene I really like because we're back at whatever government army nonsense is like working with Oscorp. They're doing a test flight. And this is the first time that we really see, like, Goblin. And Goblin flies in on, what is it, the glider? That's what it is. Glider. And he flies in on the glider and kind of, like, crashes their test flight that they're doing. And again, you're you're getting these little glimpses of Goblin. We're not really sure what he looks like yet, who he... I mean, we know who he is, but, like, who he is as a villain yet. Just these little tiny glimpses, like, building and building his character slowly. Well, it wasn't even just an Oscorp facility. So the military, since the formula right. wasn't working with Oscorp, went to the rival aerospace technician engineering company, whatever you want to call it. And this was a weapons test for them. So Goblin kind of comes in and crashes that because he's getting his revenge. He's getting Norman's revenge because they're one and the same. It's a Jekyll and Hyde scenario. So he's giving Norman what he wants without Norman actually knowing it. Oh, remind me to ask you a question later. I want to talk about Goblin at the very end in his last scene. And I, I kind of have a theory, but I want to know what like you think on it. Okay. But let's let's move forward a little bit. We get graduation, everything's fine and dandy, and then isn't this where like Peter hits on MJ? Or sorry, Harry hits on MJ. At graduation? Yeah, because Flash breaks up with her and he sees that while Peter's talking to Norman. I thought it was off camera now. He like throws a a a (laughs) a glance at her and walks her way as he sees flash breaking her breaking up with flash but i think they do a good job at that kind of keeping us a little in the dark unless you're looking for it because we're kind of taking this story from peter's point of view so it kind of puts us in that oh did you catch that you know and we also have peter getting his job at the daily bugle which is oh yeah the daily bugle it's spider-man that's what the Daily Planet is to Superman. And the Jameson intro. Oh my God, one of the best Spider-Man characters. J.K. Simmons will forever be J. Jonah Jameson. I like actually literally cannot see him as anybody else. Every movie that he's in, and I respect him wildly as an actor. I think he's phenomenal, but um, he is he's Jameson to me forever. And the funny thing is, he notices an advertisement where it says that he wants pictures of Spider-Man. And then when Peter goes into the Daily Bugle and meets J. Jonah Jameson, and Jameson's convinced that Spider-Man is like this menace menace to society, (laughs) Peter's just like he's helping him. And it sets up some great moments in the rest of the trilogy between Jonah and 
Peter, where they have like a bantering relationship. Yeah, they, I mean, they have a funny relationship, I think, in all of the universes with Spider-Man. They're just, I, you can't describe it in any other way. But let's move on to the parade scene, because I think this is one of the most famous scenes from this this movie here. Right. So now they're all adults and they're living in the city. Harry and Peter are sharing an apartment together. And MJ is working as a waitress at the diner. and At the Moondance Diner. I know. And it's a little bit of a connection. Uh, you actually look back at our Tick, Tick, Boom episode where Jonathan Larson worked at the Moondance Diner. Jonathan Larson in Tick, Tick, Boom, of course, was played by Andrew Garfield, who goes on to play Spider-Man Whoa. and the Amazing Spider-Man. Whoa. So we have a little uh, <laughs> Spider-Man connection there. What's that? Inception. <laughs> a movie within a movie. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's that's kind of a crazy connection. But this parade scene is so cool. It's This parade scene is, I think, one of the most iconic moments of this entire film. Would you agree? I think that it's the introduction to Green Goblin versus Spider-Man. And I think that mm-hmm. growing up, that was an iconic rivalry. I had a long sleeve shirt that had Green Goblin on one end and Spider-Man <laughs> on the other. So I think, yeah, it's definitely iconic. Oh my gosh. But yeah, that's, it's so cool because the use of like balloons here, they have these the like huge balloon things you see in like the Macy's Day Parade, you know, those like giant parade floats. Is that what they're called? I feel like this podcast makes me look so stupid sometimes. <laughs> but yes, the parade balloons. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> um, I think they they use them in a really smart way because they're they're so big that it could be really crushing to a lot of people. And so when you see Goblin flying in on his glider, it's and he, like going right through one of the balloons. It, it just starts this huge panic of everybody kind of like running and screaming. And it's a really quick and easy way to throw everybody into chaos. And you also have that moment where, again, a little bit of horror, Goblin throws the bomb at the ledge where all of the investors for Oscorp are, and it turns them into skeletons. And mind you, it's like early 2000s effects, so it's not super creepy. But I don't know, as a kid, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's a little terrifying. Yeah, that's one of the moments that people bring up constantly when they're like, oh, it's a little campy because it is a little silly. But they they like allowed... Sam Raimi to keep his like campiness that he had in his other films so but as everything's going on and you see these these guys just disintegrate into bones you get spider-man showing up and he's he's here to save the day and at the same time you're also introduced to what's going to be the recurring theme of Mary Jane in crisis because yeah. as the bomb exploded it sent the ledge and the balcony that she was on tipping over the edge and it crumbles and she's falling and you get the iconic Kirsten Dunst scream, which she even noted herself that after watching this movie, she was sick of hearing herself scream. (laughs) But you get the iconic moment of Spider-Man saving Mary Jane, which is going to come many, many times in this trilogy. Right. I think one of the important moments here as well is when Spider-Man like gets punched out by Goblin, because up until this point, he hasn't really met anybody that can match him like he has this strength he has these powers like he can kind of get out of any situation but he really gets punched out there like it knocks him off his rocket for a second i'd go far enough to say that goblin is the villain that brings spider-man closest to death out of all of the villains in the sam raimi trilogy oh absolutely i we talked about it before he's the scariest like he's just and here he starts shooting like the glider starts shooting like this is he's a very real villain it's not like he has no, he doesn't really have powers. It's all like 
his suit and his glider and that's what makes him so scary is because it's like more real yeah it's not like venom you know very different villains i think that one of my favorite things about spider-man in general and you can credit the comics you can credit the movies whatever you want to do but i like the variety of villains that spider-man brings now i don't think that all of them need movies like they're all about to get Mm -hmm. i don't think morbius (laughs) should have been turned into a movie i think certain characters are better left on the pages. Now, mind you, I thought the same thing about Ant-Man, but then I ended up loving Ant-Man on screen. And I didn't really give the Ant-Man comics a try until I actually ended up watching the movies. I'd read like a handful of them, but they were kind of just foolish to me. But then I actually was invested in the character. So tying it back to Spider-Man, I think that the variety of characters and villains and the layers that some of the villains have, including Goblin and Hobgoblin and Venom and having Carnage and all these other Mm-hmm. spin-offs come from them it just kind of adds to a little bit of a depth and i don't know i really enjoy it yeah because i mean goblin's really like weaponizing intelligence here he's not like radioactive or he's he doesn't have his dna changed like spider-man does he's he's like just very much a real person still and he doesn't have i mean he he even can't really escape harm or death or anything but before we get into that, <laughs> um, Goblin flees as MJ starts falling because what did Spider-Man do? He like scared he him yanked out something from the glider. So the glider was going berserk. Oh, yeah. It started smoking and then he like shot a web in his face. Yeah. Goblin flees as MJ's like falling down and Spider-Man saves her and he, he leaves with her in his arms. Although this is a terrible shot. This is one that I've seen referenced a lot in some film (laughs) critiquing where she's swinging and it's just so noticeable that she's holding on to a dummy and not actually like Tobey Maguire. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't think I paid that much attention to it because it's so quick. I thought it was like kind of pretty to watch. Her hair is like flying in the wind, you know? If you go back and watch it, you'll notice it's it's real. Well, now you're going to ruin it for me. (laughs) It's real stuff. Oh, God. All right. But. They, they fly away and he leaves her on a rooftop uh, and she just has this this girlish moment where you see that she kind of has like a little bit of a crush on him and she watches him fly away through the city again on his webs. And we kind of get this, this, oh my God, it's so scary, the scene afterwards where we see Jameson who's like talking crap about Spider-Man and Goblin just busts through and Spider-Man ends up saving Jameson, which... I think adds to their kind of complicated relationship that they have a little bit. And I really, this is the first time you like super see the mask on Goblin. And I love that you can see his mouth and sometimes you can see his eyes too, because it humanizes him. It's also worth mentioning though, that Goblin tries to get Jameson to give up who takes pictures of Spider-Man and Jameson doesn't budge. Right, right. And it's like, he's really, oh man, it sets up that rivalry so good between them because Goblin's, goal there was never spider-man it was to really attack the the guys like you said they were on the, the board members for the government correct so he he went there to attack them and spider-man essentially like kind of got in his way of wreaking the rest of his havoc so it really set up their rival really really well and spider-man ends up getting kidnapped here because goblin gives him this gas and he oh my god i can, i can hear it in my head right now when willem dafoe says sleep do you know what i'm talking about yeah, he knocks him out to try and make him an offer to team up. That's like a sound bite in my head where he's like, sleep. Oh, it's so creepy. 
but I love that shot when Goblin kind of comes into focus. It starts off like really blurry. So again, you're kind of seeing Peter's point of view where he's coming back. But I really think it's interesting that he leaves him alive because he could he could have easily killed him. And you said he offers to team up with him. And does he turn it down there? No, he just okay. leaves it as an open offer. And then Spider-Man, I think it's just implied because he, you know, continues foiling all of his plans. Got it. Okay. So, again, here we get MJ being attacked by some, like, goons in the street. <laughs> she was talking to Peter down the street, and and these guys follow her into a back alley. And Spider-Man ends up coming in and saving her, and he doesn't have his mask on, so he runs into a back alley. And she chases after him, and then we get that, uh, hate to keep saying iconic, but that iconic scene of him, like, lowering down, upside down, and the rain kiss sequence. I can't imagine how uncomfortable that actually was. Like when I was a kid, I was like, that is the most romantic thing in the entire world. But I can't imagine like he had rain probably in his nose. They've both gone on record in interviews talking about how disgusting it was just having like <laughs> rain and snot dripping all over them. Ew. Yeah, because I yeah. bet it was pretty cold too. And I think we're just kind of getting like a montage of like Spider-Man becoming Spider-Man here. Not in the traditional montage sense, but he, he has that scene where he goes to save the building that's on fire. And this woman is screaming about her baby and he saves the baby. But then there's a crying old woman and it turns around and it's Goblin. And it, oh my God, that shot of them like fighting in the fire is so good. Well, you have all of those. I don't even know what you would call them. I'm going to call them like knife gliders and they're flying all around peter and he's like jumping through yeah. all of these and it's very visually pleasing to watch but one of them ends up nicking him and that takes us to thanksgiving dinner because after this battle we cut back to peter and harry's condo and everyone's together for thanksgiving and they're saying that peter and norman are running late and norman comes in but they're like where's peter this is one of my favorite sequences because you have peter coming home upstairs and they hear him come in as Spider-Man and he has this giant gash on his arm. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden everyone's like, we didn't know he was home. Peter, are you up there? And all of a sudden you have the camera cut to the door opening and then it cuts away and Peter's not there anymore. And you see him hiding on the ceiling of the room and everyone's looking around. I wonder where he is. They start to turn away, but then you see just like, I want to call it a CGI drop because I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It's not very good. Yeah. But <laughs> You see a very computer-generated drop of blood fall from the wound and splat onto the ground. Yeah. And then Norman turns around. And then all of a sudden, Peter's not on the ceiling anymore. He's under the balcony outside. And Norman I... walks out and he's looking around. And there's just such a high tension. Yeah, this it's so good because it's, it's almost like they kind of know at this point. And I had in my notes, like, this is the point where the line between Norman and the Green Goblin are getting really blurry because you're seeing flashes of Goblin in his eyes. And I don't know, he just has this, this like deep evil nature to him when it comes to trying to find Peter. And then Peter comes in through the front door. And while they're at the dinner table, they notice the gash on his arm. Aunt May is like, what's happened? And they unbutton his sleeve and show the wound. And you have this moment of realization where it cuts to Willem Dafoe's eyes and it cuts yeah. to Tobey Maguire's eyes. And you see that he knows that he's Spider-Man and he knows that he's the goblin. And it's just such a high tension. And all of a sudden, Norman says that he has to leave, which leads Harry to follow him out into the hallway. And they get into an argument where Norman essentially calls Mary Jane a whore. Ugh, I hate him so much in this moment. Like, I loved Norman at certain points in the movie, but he's he's horrible here. 
He's like being so mean to MJ for no reason. And then when MJ says that he's being a creep, Harry tries to stick up for his father. And that's one of my favorite moments where Aunt May steps in. Yeah. And she's, I mean, she's such a motherly figure and they obviously grew up together. She's like, you can't act like that. And later that night, Aunt May actually is visited by the goblin while she's saying her bedtime prayers. He crashes into her room and sends her into a shock, which takes her to the hospital. And while visiting her, Mary Jane also reveals that she kind of has a little bit of a crush on Spider-Man to Peter because (laughs) at this point he saved her twice. And, you know, she's saying, I don't really know. I just, it's so mysterious. And Peter's sitting there, of course, knowing that it's him, but Harry comes in and notices that there's a little bit of a chemistry building between Peter and MJ as they're talking about our favorite uh, web-slinging hero. Well, they're they're holding hands, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yikes! Which obviously could be like, a, oh my god, the person who's most important to you, who's like the last piece of family you have in your life, is in the hospital and just got brutally attacked. Like, let me hold your hand. But Harry is just so toxic. As a person, I don't know. Harry like really loses me about halfway through this movie. In context, though, the last discussion they had was Mary Jane said that his dad was a creep for calling her a whore. And he basically said, well, you know, my dad's usually right. So I think it's safe to say that he came to visit Aunt May and send his condolences. But that probably was his alert that, you know, this relationship really is over. Yeah. So that all kind of throws us into our, our last kind of scene here. And it is... So good. I think this is one of my favorite Spider-Man scenes. The bridge fight sequence. Let's talk about it. So MJ gets kidnapped in the middle of the night by Green Goblin. And she wakes up on top of scaffolding right above the city. And the Green Goblin starts to attack her. But at the same time, he also attacks the Roosevelt Island cable cars that go between the city and Roosevelt Island. And, you know, here comes Spider-Man. I have to sing in every episode. <laughs> and and basically gives him the choice between who are you going to save, MJ or this car that just happens to be full of kids. And he's basically holding them both off the edge of the building. So he's either going to drop yeah. MJ into the river or the trolley car. And Spider-Man's pleading with him, please don't do this. So instead, Goblin just drops both. Right. And there's this really cool shot of both of them falling like in his... in like eye reflective pieces so you see mj in one eye and then the car falling in the other eye and he goes off to save mj first which bold choice but (laughs) honestly i probably would have too one of the things about this battle too that's also really special and i was reading something about how this movie made a big impact post 9 11 because a lot of the mm, promotional yeah. wear for this movie involved stuff that had already been shot before 9-11. I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can actually find it. But there was a teaser trailer and it was the first teaser for Spider-Man where he catches a bunch of bank robbers that were in a helicopter and slings them in a web that's positioned between the two twin towers. And of course, after 9-11, they pulled that advertisement oh. out. And there's a couple different nods to stuff like that. But I think that something that was common in movies and just in the country at that time was they wanted to show a sense of unity. And in this final battle, I feel like they really chose to incorporate the citizens of New York because you have them all coming up on the bridge, throwing garbage down at Goblin saying, if you mess with him, you mess with all of us. And you have the people that are coming up under the bridge, under the barge, and they're like, lower them onto us. They're all trying to help out, basically. And I think that that was almost (laughs) like a sense of unity. Yeah, that's that unifying moment here. 
Yeah, I was also reading something about the Twin Towers there as well, where they they chose in, I think it's like the final sequence where you can see the Twin Towers in the background. They chose to keep them in. They could have CGI'd them out or whatever, but they, they chose not to do that. I probably, I don't think it's necessary to do that. I mean, this movie did come out in 2002, which is, it came out in May, so not even a year after 9-11 happened. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a necessary thing to do. Do you? I mean, what would you have done? I mean, they probably, half of those shots are probably VFX shots that they didn't even have the time or money to go back and redo, in all honesty. I think that unless they're dominantly featured, it's not really something that they needed to go back in and fix. Probably a good idea that they took out that one scene with the robbers, though. I don't think that was an actual scene, though. If you watch the trailer, it's very commercialized. It's not theatrical at all. Okay, That, that makes sense. So now that the trolley car and Mary Jane are lowered down onto this barge that the citizens drove up and the citizens of New York have essentially helped Spider-Man, Goblin kind of grabs this beaten up Spider-Man and brings him to this abandoned building. And it's a very bloody fight. But if you notice, there's not actually blood coming out of Tobey Maguire's mouth. It's like a clear liquid that I guess you're led on to believe is spit. And I was reading that they chose to use a clear liquid instead of red because If it was blood, it could have warranted an R rating for violence. And they wanted to make sure that kids would be able to see this movie because obviously Spider-Man appeals to a lot of kids. So they kept it clear to try and tone down the violence here. So it's funny that you bring that up because they didn't actually use a clear liquid. They, They did use blood and they had to change it like in VFX during post to ensure that they did get that PG-13 rating. Gotcha. Okay. Like they had to go the extra step to like take out the color. So they actually used it and just took out the color. Funny. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. That's so crazy. That one shot can really give you that R rating. But it is like this. This fight is brutal. Like it is just a fist fight because I mean, at the end of the day, Peter has like super strength and whatnot, but they're they're still human beings. It's not like he's Thor, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And right when he's on the brink of death, essentially, I mean, his mask is torn in half, he's gushing blood, Mm -hmm. and he's just almost out of it. Green Goblin makes a snarky remark about how him and MJ are going to have a fun time after he's gone. And that kind of gives Peter that final vengeance that he needs to push through. And he all of a sudden takes the fight back and pushes the goblin down. And all of a sudden, it's Norman again. And he's like, Peter, wait, wait. The goblin killed. I had nothing to do with it. And that monologue he gives is so good, though. Yeah, it really is. I think Willem Dafoe is just such a character actor. And he's just having the two Jekyll and Hyde type personalities really gave him some freedom here. Okay, so I this is where I want to bring up what I was talking about earlier. What do you think of Goblin? Do you think it's something that like possesses him? Do you think he does have that Jekyll and Hyde like side where he is still Norman, but like Goblin takes over him at certain points and he has no control over it? Or do you think he's just like given into the evil and like Norman is Goblin? So when this movie first came out, when I grew up watching it, I thought that it was just Norman had become evil and this was Norman and the Goblin had become one. Mm -hmm. After everything that's gone down in Spider-Man No Way Home, where we kind of brought Norman back into it and gave him a redemption arc and a possibility at that, I choose to believe and look at it as more so of a he can't control when the Goblin takes over. It's kind of like an Enchantress type situation where there's this inner demon possessing you And it can take over, but you're not going to know when it is. Of course, with Enchantress, you do. But no one knows when it's Norman and when it's Goblin. And that's kind of one of the dangers of it because it's so in disguise. But at the end of No Way Home, 
that leaves it on, do I choose to believe he actually was cured or do I choose to believe that that was just Goblin playing into it to trick everyone into thinking that he's done? Yeah, I I agree with you. I really do think that it, it is that kind of Jekyll and Hyde personality where Goblin is just something that possesses him and he has no control over it. And just, I don't know, it's, it's so complicated because it did alter like, his body chemistry but the goblin really like resides in the mask like every time norman talks to the green goblin he's talking to the mask you know exactly and he's even talking as the goblin in these last moments where he's pleading with peter but you also see him making a motion on his little control panel on his suit and that's where you see the glider put out its blades and once he gives up his monologue he's done playing and he's essentially going to stab spider-man in the back with his glider but the spider sense kicks in and you see this epic backflip over the glider and it ends up impaling norman himself and that is how he is sent out yeah and okay so I feel like that's the Green Goblin still possessing his body a little bit. And my my final argument for like that dual personality type thing is that his last words aren't like something against Spider-Man or whatever. He just says, Peter, don't tell Harry. So he still has that like fatherliness to him where like his last thoughts are about his son. And he's like, don't let him know that I was this person. I think Norman also might be a little bit scared because he sees a lot of himself in Harry and he doesn't want Harry to become the monster that he is now dying as. Yeah, exactly. So, oh my God, this this scene is really sad too, which really sets up the the Peter and Harry kind of battle that we get throughout the rest of this like trilogy. But Peter decides to bring like norman's body home as if he had like died in his home or whatnot and harry sees spider-man next to norman's body immediately and blames him for his death so harry's like hatred for spider-man starts there because he saw him carrying his father's limp dead body and we're taken to norman's funeral where harry's telling peter that he vows that he's going to get revenge on spider-man and that's gonna be his entire character essentially for the next two movies Yeah, it's a good setup for it. I think they did really, really, really good origin stories for everybody here. Like, gives them really good motivation. Everything's justified. And it's it's very satisfying to watch. And at this funeral, (laughs) this is so inappropriate. MJ literally tells Peter that she's in love with him at Harry's dad's funeral. Like, that is is so not cool, MJ. You know, she's been going through a lot. She was just dangled off a bridge, so. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. But he rejects her because of Spider-Man. I mean, she can't know that he's Spider-Man in this movie because that's not the kind of relationship they've had at this point. As their relationship grows, of course, we know that it'll blossom to become something more. But I think that from what we've seen, it's rightfully so. I know a lot of people were like, that's so unrealistic that... You know, a 19-year-old, the girl of his dreams confesses her love to him and he just walks away from it. But you look at the growth that Peter's had from the beginning where all he used to think about in the beginning is Mary Jane Watson. And all of his inner monologue is him talking about Mary Jane Watson and how she's, oh, yeah. That's his exact quote is, oh, yeah. But (laughs) by the end of it, he's become Spider-Man and he realizes that there's more to life and there's actual problems that he has to deal with now. So I think that it's really fitting and in character for him. Yeah, and he's trying to keep her out of danger, which really is the biggest act of love that he can like do towards her. And then we get our closing montage of Spider-Man swinging through the city, ending yep. on him just hanging off of this giant American flag because... Because America. 
because I wonder America. if that had anything to do with 9-11 now that we've been talking about it a little bit, because I know a lot of things that came out after 9-11, like the hardcore dramas and like sad things were not very popular and they weren't doing well. So these movies that are like, oh, yeah, we're all united. We're all together. America. It was a different time. But <laughs> I wonder if they chose to add that shot post 9-11. I'd be interested in that. It could be. And I mean, let's look at this as a summer blockbuster. You have to look at where we've come from, which is Jaws, and where we're going next, which is Jurassic Park, which is going to take us a little bit back before where we are right now with Spider-Man. But Mm. Spider-Man at the time was just a movie that theaters hadn't seen before. It, It was the first movie to make $100 million on its opening weekend. It was the highest grossing movie of the year worldwide. It was third highest grossing domestically. You look at the home media sales and Spider-Man's one of the most popular DVD releases, like the original Spider-Man. And you look at the VHS, which if any of you guys saw our Instagram story, you know that I dusted my copy off of it. But it was one of two VHSs at the time that included special features. And that was unheard of. And at the end of the credits, the special feature is just a music video. The other movie at the time was Harry Potter, which had also just come out. And funny enough, Christopher Columbus, who was the director of the first Harry Potter movie, was offered Spider-Man, but turned it down to direct Harry Potter. Interesting. I feel like we would have gotten a very different movie. Yeah, Christopher Columbus definitely has a different style. Style. And I think that Sam Raimi's style was perfect for this Spider-Man trilogy. Exactly. So where would you put this on a scale of 1 to 10? Honestly, like a 9.5. I love this movie. Oh, wow. That's really high. I know. And you know what? Part of that is like nostalgia because like we had mentioned kind of at the top of the episode, this was one of my favorite movies growing up. I loved Spider-Man. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen this movie. So it really like brings that out for me and that like makes me feel like a kid watching it again. So that definitely plays into it as a movie. I still think it's really good. I'm going to knock down a few points for like visual effects and whatnot because, you know, it was 2002 and Other movies like Harry Potter were coming out at the time where you get those flawless Quidditch sequences. So it's not like it's impossible. But yeah, I'm going to give it a 9.5. I just think it was phenomenal for the time that it came out. And it made a really big impact on my childhood and what I grew to love as movies. And I think without this movie, had it not made such waves at the box office, we would not have the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the way that we do today. So you think Spider-Man paved the way for superhero movies, essentially? Absolutely. Please, please, please read that article. It's screenrant.com. We're going to like link it in the show notes. It's really interesting. So how would you rank it? One to ten. I'm going to give it a seven. I okay. enjoy it a lot. I think it's a very well-layered and well-paced origin story. I don't think it drags on too long. I think it gives you just enough action and suspense and romance to give everyone something that they want. I mean, I saw it as a kid and I had fun with it. And I think that there was enough that the adults that were taking their kids at the time would have fun with it. I think that Spider-Man is almost like a unifying character. He brings people closer together. And if there's one thing that I know a lot of people can agree on, it's their love for Spider-Man because he's just such an iconic character. And this was such an iconic movie at the time and now. I mean, I don't know many people that haven't seen at least one of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely iconic. They're a game changer. And that's that's what it is at the end of the day. We're looking at these summer blockbusters, and I think all of them are game-changing movies. Yeah, 
So on that note, I'm going to go ahead and say that if you guys enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and give us a follow at BTST Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. And if you have any movie suggestions for us or you want to let us know your thoughts on Spider-Man 2002, go ahead and shoot us an email at btstpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to join us next time where we will be talking about Jurassic Park. But in the meantime, if you are interested, we have set up a Patreon. So if you have any interest in donating to that, it's going to be Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash been there, seen that. So we'd appreciate any and all help that you guys could give us. We kind of put up this whole podcast ourselves and it does take time and it does take money. Uh, but we have some special little perks there for you if you're if you're at all interested in that. So with that, I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this has been another episode of Been There, Seen That. Thanks for listening.